Welcome to the first Lunch Lady Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Louise Bannister. If you're a regular reader of Lunch Lady, you'll already know we love having interesting conversations with extraordinary people. So this podcast is an extension of that. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Mariam Issa. Mariam's a mother of five, a speaker, an author, a storyteller, and a community builder. Mariam came to Australia as a refugee from Somalia 21 years ago. She moved to Brighton, one of the most affluent suburbs in Melbourne, and her and her family faced many challenges. But despite all her trials and tribulations, Mariam's belief in connection led her to pull down her back fence and start a community garden. It's an incredible story. Mariam, it is so lovely to uh, finally sit down to chat to you. Um, yes, I'm really excited about this conversation. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Lou. My absolute pleasure. Yeah. So the first time, just to give our listeners a little bit of um, context, the first time I heard you speak was not that long ago, actually, in a in a little group that I'm part of um, about climate change and um, community gardens and and things like that. And your name came up as someone that was very inspirational in this area. And we were lucky that you hopped on Zoom and, and talked about your life for an hour. And I was just absolutely blown away and just thought, what an incredible story. What an incredibly um, compassionate and resilient person. And I'm just so, yeah, I'm really grateful to, to have another chat to you. I feel very, um, very lucky. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that, yeah, our listeners get to, to hear from you too. So I know that um, just from the little I've heard from you that you just, you've just such a great storyteller. So really, I'd love to just have you share your experience um, on how you made your way to Australia and that, that journey before we sort of delve into the more um, community garden aspect uh, and things like that, yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. So my journey as a refugee was 21 years ago, actually, which is a long time ago. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So I came to Australia when I was 30 years old and I came with four children and I was pregnant with my fifth child. So it was a really huge journey. And prior to coming to Australia, we were displaced for eight years. So it was a journey of adversity. And coming to the West, you know, having closed that chapter of eight years of displacement of the civil war in Somalia, another phase started for me in the West because I had never interacted with a Westerner before. I knew nothing about the Western culture. And, you know, although I do think that my family and I were very lucky refugees in the context of uh, the way refugees are dealt with now in Australia and in asylum seeking, I think we came through the family reunion visa. So which meant that we were processed offshore and we did have family here. So our journey wasn't that difficult. You know, uh, we were resettled straight away into a beautiful suburb in, in Melbourne, in Brighton. So it was all good, but I knew nothing about Brighton. I knew nothing of its affluency. I knew nothing, you know, to me, Australia, like I've, I've come to a whole completely different uh, world. Yeah, so, planet. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, uh, I came at a time where I was really so tired. I had, I was also pregnant and 
it was just um so the first few months actually were really okay because we i rested and then we started the journey after my child was born um my husband did not have a word of english at the time so he started school the kids started school and i felt that at that time you know the transition between my family and the community was all on me Mm. Yeah so that is where I started off and um the sad part is that I we were the only uh the first almost the first Africans to reside in Brighton so it was a total um different for the community as well and I remember that at that time my our next door neighbor installed cameras in his house Wow. Yeah. Because because you because you'd moved there. Yes, because we'd moved oh. there. So oh. it was like a kind of, you know, and then 2 years after that, you know, the September 11 happened and then we were not only black in Brighton but we were also Muslim in Brighton. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that kind of a little bit shook us and then we sat we went into a journey of uncertainty. We took the kids out of the normal schools and then took them to an Islamic school. and you know all that as all that was happening my you know the my child who was born in the heart of the community reached the age of kinder and i remember taking her to a local kinder because i felt that she's a 4 year old you know nothing bad's going to happen to her um there isn't much bullying with with you know young children so we went into the nearest kinder in in our home and when we came out she asked me a question that changed the trajectory of our whole family she said mom did they not want me because i'm black wow yeah and with that it was like a a bomb in a mother's heart you know mm-hmm. and i do get emotional to this day when i re- when i remember that because i felt that my 4 year old had lost her innocence that day and so what that did for me was awaken me from a deep sleep awaken yeah. from awaken me from a place of uncertainty a place of fear a place of you know indecisive wasn't making good decisions so i felt that is this really what i've come for and i think that question really gave me the courage to really start something different yeah yeah and and to connect with with the community at uh a level where i felt like i'm not going to have my two because sometimes you know with people who come from um you know whether you come as a refugee or whether you come as an asylum seeker or as a migrant you are always thinking that you will go back home one day right and so we were in between worlds and we were always thinking oh you know one day we we are going to go back home yeah and so that day we made my husband and I I think we really sat down and to make the decision that this is home that we're not going to look back yeah yeah and so with that comes certainty with that comes you know uh rooting yourself in a place and so that's where my journey really started from tell me a little bit because i i want to go into um you know how after your daughter uh, told you that and then you sort of saying you had like a internal shift in mm-hmm. how you were going to 
I suppose, deal with the surroundings you'd been put in. Um, before that, I know you've got an incredible story um, in Africa where I remember you telling about how you weren't meant to go to school and then you sort of tricked, almost tricked your mum into letting you go to school, which I, that story is just so wonderful. And can you can you share a little bit about yeah, that? About I think I was always, you know, I was a very resourceful child when I remember my childhood because I grew up almost free range, you know. My mother is from a nomadic background and so is my father. So we just didn't have any, you know, we didn't have any structure. It was just, we lived chaotically and, you know, just in a free kind of way and so my family you know um my father was um he was exiled from Somalia for political reasons and then he came to a small town called Malindi in Kenya which is a neighboring country so in Malindi we lived with it was sort of a kind of a village at the time and we lived among this uh, beautiful tribe called the Giriyama. They were the, you know, um, the keepers of the land of, of, of that town. And they actually cultivated their land. And I remember that, you know, when my mom came into the community, the, the local chief, you know, came to her and said, I want to offer you a land to cultivate for your children. Wow. And my mother did not speak the language at the time. I was actually always her translator. I, wow. Yeah, I could speak Swahili. And I, I love languages. And I remember that I could speak Swahili at that time. And Shmam was actually very suspicious of the new culture. Uh, and she didn't speak their language. She was fearful, you know. And so she just retreated and said, no, I don't need the land. And I remember my younger brother and I going to the, you know, talking to the um, to the chief and saying, we'll take the land. We want to cultivate that land. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were about seven and six years old at the time. Oh. Yeah. So that that was, you know, um, how, you know, we, we started in that in that setting. So I remember that, you know, my mom wanted to send my brother to school. And I come from a very patriarchal culture and my family was not for, you know, schooling girls. And I know that my mom had an, her agenda and mind clashed because she felt that she needed to prepare me for my future husband, as was the Somali tradition. Um, and I wanted, you know, to go to school. And I was sort of like a tomboy and a very curious child. And at that time, I was even reading, you know, learning to read my brother's, my older brother's books. And so I had to come up with a strategy because mom wasn't going to send me to school. So she loved us, you know, and my brother Soran because he was her youngest. And mm -hmm. I came up with this bullying scenario, which, you know, if, if Soran went to school on his own, that he would be bullied by the local um, kids and that I would support him in that so she should send me to school with him yeah and and that's how I actually really got um to go to school so so you land in Australia with with five with five children almost five children or five you had the five children. children and then my fifth one was born here yes yeah and 
you, you sort of have these experience where, you know, I'm sure there were many of racism in Australia yes. and fear. And fear and, you know, there's yeah. a lot. And I think, you know, it all, you know, when you're a mother and your kids are going to school, I think you just sort of, you know, uh, are pushed into uh, the community. Whether you like it or not, you have to be yeah. part of that community. You become part of the school, you know, the school the school system and all those things. And I knew nothing. I, I just almost was, you know, I had this kind of innocence around me, you know. And sometimes I think that's when they say, you know, ignorance is bliss. So I was making a lot of mistakes and I might have been annoying a lot of people because I was just learning as I was you know, living in the culture. And so I think what really helped me was my my love for being curious. You know, I was curious about the culture. And so, and also after, you know, what had happened with my daughter, I was just pushing in. So there was a lot of uh, resistance, you know. I remember a time when I would be standing, you know, I would go and want to be part of the mothers, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the, after assembly. And they would be talking and I would want to just listen in. And I remember them, just everyone going, oh, I have to go somewhere. And they would just leave me there by myself. Yeah. So there were things like that. And when I do remember now, I just, I do feel like, you know, I felt that I wasn't wanted there. So, but at that time, you know, for me, it was about my children. I was just really sort of pushing in. And I remember that the women who really accepted me, um, after a while, while more from England and having come to the country themselves as migrants rather than the Australian women themselves. And so when you think back to that time, because I remember, I think I remember you saying um, your only experience when you were younger, you used to read the Enid Blyton books, didn't you? Is that what you yes, said? Yes, yes. The Famous Five. I loved, yeah, and the adventures, you know. So to me, these were just the stories, imaginations of someone, you know, someone's imagination. I never thought that one day I would be, I would befriend a woman with green eyes or blue eyes with blonde hair. You know, those things were yes. unimaginable to me, you know. Yeah. So having come in the adventures, sort of like, you know, uh, people walking with dogs, for instance, you know. And and having read those adventures was just kind of, you know, a new understanding to the world that I used to imagine, to the, the world that I used to go into in my, you know, in, in my young days. And so I think that came from, that helped a lot. It really helped me. And I felt like I was in a sort of an adventure somehow. Adventure. I, really, I really was anyway. I was in an adventure and yeah so and exploring this adventure and looking at you know um the differences did you meet were there other were you saying so there were were there other african refugees in any similar situation or you're pretty much alone oh, at yeah, this point? i was i was alone but i was also an interpreter i don't know i i just had this big battery that would not die i had so much you know in me that I was an interpreter. I was a mother of five. I was doing so many things. I was juggling so many balls that I was getting different experiences and I was loving it. Like I was really uh, thriving in that, you know, in that. But what I remember is, you know, through these adventures, I think I had phases. I had phase, the first phase where I was 
going into the community and getting to know them and all that, I felt like a victim. Right. There was an utter powerlessness within me of having, I think it came from shame as well, like having had a whole country disintegrate in front of my eyes and then coming into an affluent space when you had nothing, you know. So I was kind of like even my dignity was, you know, I wasn't dignified in the space that I was in. And so in that space of powerlessness, I remember that I had the friends and the people around me were almost similar. Mm. Yep. And, and somehow with the grace of God, you know, I transitioned into a space of anger, which I think is so much better than being a victim because <laughs> yeah. you get to breathe and, you know, and blame other people for your problems. And then I became an activist in that space. I was really angry. I was angry with the world that had disintegrated in front of me. I was angry with my parents for having sheltered me from life. I was angry with my, you know, communal culture. So I was angry with the racism that was going around around me in, you know, in in in, in the new community. So I felt that, you know, in this space, and I was also angry as a woman. Because I felt that I wasn't living in my power. I wasn't owning my story in that space. You mentioned that, um, I remember this part, you mentioned that once you got inside those homes, you realised that things were very similar. I think you mentioned something about, I'm not sure what happened Absolutely. I just really, you know, once I started to go into community work, I then started volunteering in community and then I started working in Brighton Homes because I really, truly wanted to see um, the Western woman in her natural habitat. How does she parent? How does she, you know, uh, how is she within her household? And so I went into this really beautiful Brighton Homes that sometimes I felt that nobody lived in. Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I didn't even sometimes realize what I was cleaning because they seemed clean to me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think my insights and understanding of the community really came from those homes. And then I happened to work in an aged care center. It was so much. It was almost like I was being guided through the yeah. journey. And so I went into aged care and then I interacted with the elders there. And to me, it did not really, aged care did not make sense to me. Because Mm. I felt that this is the wisdom of the community and they're kept away from the community. Yeah, that seems crazy. So it was really, I could not understand how they could be put away and to, you know, to be on their own because at in our African culture, the thing that you know when you are an older person that you really look forward to is having moments with your grandchildren and mm. being around them and being around the community and you know and all of a sudden, I see that you know there was a destruction here as well and as I became part, more part of the community, I then started to understand that there was, you know, mental health, there was suicide, there was domestic violence. And then I realized that amidst the, you know, the glamour and the glory in Brighton, there was a less apparent truth as well. Yeah. And so the, the, how did that propel you forward to that next stage, you know, of 
so, that realization like yeah. what happened so what really happened is sometimes i do say that life has been a safari for me an extension you know a real extension of my lived experience and a plateau that engages and excites me to really mold shape and design my stories because i became at that time i became a storyteller and i was writing as well so i was really looking at at the stories and this is me it's my story and i can you know sort of shape it in the way that i want it i can mold it in the way that i want to so having discovered that i felt that it was also a compelling platform it was a platform that was compelling me to ask brave and courageous questions so if i was going to live a kind the kind of life that i want to create for myself then how what is it that i want so in that space i became an introspective i started to ask powerful questions and one of the questions that i really asked was why am i here because i didn't know why was i in the heart of brighton why was i brought here so having asked that question what came apparent for me was that i lived in communal culture all my life which means that you are in dependency you are dependent among each other so you don't get to learn about yourself that much you live among others you know you you you're living with you know with other people and that's how you know yourself Yeah. But coming to the west I realized it was a very individual culture. Mm. So the individuality was really missing for me. And that is why I became really intrigued by the western woman because I felt that she was she was actually the woman, you know, she was the teacher of my children, she was the doctor that I visited, she was the community builder, she was everywhere. that mm. i saw progression happening and i felt how is this possible and there aren't many uh you know african women leaders in where i come from so that became my 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 big now um curiosity and i wanted to understand more of the journey of as a woman how can i become the leader or the voice how can i voice have my own voice heard and can i contribute to the community so i mean what a what a beautiful pairing this incredible um communal way of knowing how to live which we definitely lack absolutely yeah um, but having lived in communal as well i realized that on its own it doesn't work right yeah hence the destruction that happened in my community yeah and being an individual and individual culture doesn't work on its own either So mm. when you combine the two that's when we self actualize that's when we reach our interdependence yeah. and we know that from this space we understand that you know I've reached my 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 individual potential and I'm I can also now contribute um to the greater good and I think that's the space where you know for me I I entered my third phase of life of true empowerment feeling that i am empowered enough now to voice the concerns in the community to voice the concerns of women to you know to bring the stories of my ancestry um to give life to my you know to to my culture because i feel that culture is a currency and yeah. when i came my currency was deflated i couldn't buy anything with it 
Mm. And now having, you know, I felt that I could strengthen my cultural currency and that now I could teach other people. And that's when I started my business, Cook with Mariam. And I became an entrepreneur and I started teaching people about the wealth of other nations. Like, you know, I felt like I love food and I used food as a catalyst for social change. Amazing. How did you start with that? Like, how did you, after having this experience, well, how did I you... went all the way, I was part of, um, um, you know, um, networking group. Yeah. And I remember people telling me, oh, you know, it was um, the Brighton Network, uh, the Bayside Business Network. And people were saying, oh, you can't go in there. You know, it's, it, it's exclusive. It's very, you know, affluent. It's like, you know, you won't even understand the people there. So the more you're told me you can't do that, I, <laughs> you know, I would just go ahead in. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love this image of you yes, and then not I what really I I know that I also in that space I was also uh, navigating and you know exploring and making a lot of mistakes but you know my love for people and I think my superpower is connection. I connect with people easily. And so I connected in that in that platform and I started I got to know uh, Rotarians I got to know uh, men of business I could talk to men and women so I did not differentiate I just went in and just talked to anyone that would talk to me and I think I became I I'm now sort of like an icon in Brighton because I <laughs> I feel like I just really stand out. And I was standing out, you know, because I was wearing the scarf and I was this the only black African woman in that room. And yeah, so no one could, you know, could could not see me. You know, I was the elephant in the room. Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. And it often goes. I think, you know, the minute you start, connection is a very, it's an incredible thing. And one it thing is. my mother always used to tell us is, if you can host someone in your home, in your heart, you can host them in your home. So what my mother meant with that is that she asked us to always forgive people. Mm. And so had I been caught up in, you know, in all the, uh, you know, the hard bits that had happened in Brighton and I felt like, you know, the, the racism and all the, you know, uh, the assumptions that were made of me, all the labels that were put on me, I let go of all that you know, and just started anew. I just wanted to be the change that, you know, I wanted to see in the world. And I saw a lot of many things. I saw many things that were wrong in, in this community. And I felt that I was part of this community and that I could voice these wrong things that were happening. And actually, when I did, people embraced it. And they were waiting for it. They, they didn't even know. For it. And I think yeah. 2012, an explosion happened for me because I launched my book, A Resilient Life. You know, I, I wrote that book three years in a writing class. And it took me another three years to contemplate if I really wanted to share it with the public. Yeah. And so in that six years, you know, I came up with, you know, uh, a resilient life. My son at that time had finished uni. He's, he was a graphic designer and he came up with the label, uh, with the, you know, the butterfly on it. I didn't even ask him to choose a butterfly. He chose a butterfly 
and one of the wings of the butterfly was damaged. And he said, mom, this is you now, the new wing, you know? And one of the wings was complete. Mm-hmm. And that gave me then, you know, it, it really humbled me. And I realized in that, that my, my children were following the journey. They were part of the journey. Amazing. Yeah. And so I knew that I wanted to give back to Brighton because it had given me so much. And, you know. And tell us about, tell us about the kids. So, I mean, this is just such an amazing part of your story is the the, the building of this community garden. Of the Can community you- garden. So when Sarah, who was born, you know, my last child, she reached, she went to um, to secondary school. And that first day I met Katrina, who was a German migrant. And Katrina and I just, you know, we just clicked and, you know, talked that night. It was a parent-teacher night. And then afterwards, you know, I had this idea of uh, starting the raw garden. I had done a a permaculture course previous to that. And then I was almost on the process of, you know, making it a not-for-profit organization. But as you know, we're always afraid when we're starting a new venture. It was a not-for-profit. I knew not much about it, but I was adamant that I would start this organization. And I worked with community centers. They were not, you know, supporting me. They said, oh, why don't you just, do, you know, work with us? Why do you need to start something on your own? And I felt like, you know, I want to do this in my backyard. It was, I felt it as a calling. I didn't know. I couldn't even answer them as well. Because it, it, my backyard was completely empty at that time. And I knew nothing about community gardens at that stage. I just wanted to gather women. I just wanted women to come together. So I went to Katrina and I, one day as we were, you know, we were having a coffee and I told her about the project. And I said, well, you know, this is the project that I want to do. Do you think that you can support me in this? And at that time, she was in transition. Her youngest also was, you know, in secondary school at that time. And she was, you know, she had time. So she said, what can I do? And the beauty of it is that Katrina had come from a family of farmers. Like they had, they owned a, a ranch back in Germany. Wow. Yeah. And so we started it together. And we actually joke that our garden is where the African, you know, the African chaos meets the German precision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm. Because she and was what- a really hard worker and, pres- you know, she had that precision and I had this chaotic, you know, creative mind. So Joy, yeah, joy. Joy, you know, create. You know, creative is very chaos, actually. It's yes. chaos. Until I became a gardener, I was really um, not happy with my, my chaotic, you know, ways. And yeah. the garden taught me that, you know, chaos is part of life and it's part of creation. Yeah. So what, so, so you basically, I mean, you, you, you take down your fence at home yes so what I did I was actually almost like a guidance because you know one thing that I love I'm also a woman of faith and I love the Quran and so I there is this verse in the Quran that says the olive tree is the tree of neither the east nor the west so 
it's supposed to it's a bridging tree and so we made our fence with olive six olive trees oh beautiful and wanted to invite people in so what we also did was we just invited women we invited into we went into the community we started talking we became you know started speaking to Rotarians to community elders to community women we just took our work out there and as we were talking to people we realized that we didn't actually the organization just started so we invited people to you know um to build the garden together and one of my friends who I did the permaculture course with was a permaculture designer and so she agreed to come and design the whole place for us and then we asked the community to adopt a tree and that they could have they could put in their tree with an intention so we had a tree planting day which the whole community came and everybody came with their tree like we bought the trees but they donated the money and everybody you know um had an intent for their tree they wanted to choose the trees so we have almost like 40 40 fruit trees now in our backyard and front yard so we've got almost like an orchard in our front yard so talk me through how you explain this to your family how you said yep okay i'm going to how did that go down well my my husband at the time my ex-husband um, yeah. was he's a very cautious man very introverted could not understand what i'm doing but neither could he understand back in the days when i was like you know i would wake up in the middle of the night and feel that i am part of this community but no one knows me like i was always yeah. thinking in terms of if anything happens to us as a family if we're accused of anything no one can actually stand up for us and say i know this family and when i voiced that to my husband he he did not get it he would not get that it's like you know we're okay you know our family is on the other side our community so we'll be interacting with you know the cultural community but i'm like we live here we're part of this community so eventually i just managed to convince him that we you know Will he didn't think it was possible anyway and he thought maybe I'll just do it for a few months and then get tired of it because there's a lot of work involved and I wasn't paid at all wow so I'm doing it now for 8 years and it's still the same we work voluntarily and how did it develop so you had this planting day the people came i mean that must have felt like a monumental moment for you oh when my all god the it, it actually was um you know the monumental moment for me was not only the garden but you know i took my oath as an australian in brighton town hall and i launched my book in brighton town hall and it was launched by the mayor of brighton and it was a tuesday morning i remember and we had more than 120 people attend all brighteners mostly brighteners and that was like wow i never thought if you had looked into a crystal ball when i came and thought you know this is what you're going to do when you know i would never have believed it so i 
think my story is very much connected to trust. And what I teach people now is to trust, you know? And I have an acronym for trust. The first T for trust for me is truth, to know our truth. And sometimes it's not that we don't know our truth. We do, but we're scared of it. We don't want to have a, we don't want to look at it. So I encourage women. I encourage, you know, my clients. I'm a life coach now and I tell them, look at your truth and connect with it. And so in this truth, I know that we have two truths. We have our dynamic truth, which is the form and, you know, our living in this world and our, you know, our material world. But we also have a spiritual world. And the connection to our spiritual world and the material world actually makes up our truth. Mm. And the second letter for truth is resilience. You know, once you know your truth, then be resilient enough to remove the obstacles out of the way so that you can live your truth. The you is the union of the four bodies. I never knew that I had a physical, you know, I, I, we almost always what we know of ourselves is just our physical body, you know, and the mind, you know, the best is, is those two that we relate to. But we also have our emotions, you know, that guide us, that tell us when something is wrong, you know, how we feel, you know, connecting to our feeling, to our emotional, uh, you know, body. And then to also connect with our energetic body. So I recognized that in you, you find the union between your heart and your mind and your physicality and your energy body. The S stands for me as a surrender, you know, the acceptance and the letting go of the stories, the, you know, the programs that we have been given. You know, we've been conditioned to, to separate each other, to separate, you know, um, ourselves. So it took me really into a deep contemplation that when we surrender, we really tap into our true connection of our humanity. And the last one is to live in the timelessness, in the present moment now. That's what I call trust. And, you know, I look at birds and, and it's said that, you know, a bird will stand on the weakest of branches and won't be afraid for the branch to, fall, to, you know, to break because it knows that it has its wings to fly. And so when we reach that level of trust, we become less afraid, we become less fearful because we know that we're not in this alone, that there is a deeper and a bigger truth than what we see of the five senses. And and now we had a lovely little chat the other day just about the importance of um, women leaders in this time, you know, um, everyone sort of finding their truth and... Um, you know, using this time as momentum to, to catapult women leaders. What yes. What's your thoughts on that? Yes, I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial. And I think that when it's role modeled or when it's shown to us, we see the power that it has. You know, for instance, Michelle Obama mm. has shown us so much in the sense that she opened the White House, 
you know, almost like my community garden, yeah. you know? So when we see women leaders, you know, behind every man, you know, although Obama was the leader and he was, you know, uh, the presidential and all that, but the work that Michelle did, and when, I don't know if you've read her book, uh, Become I did. Yes, yes, I did. And she took us into really, uh, into her inner journey and her inner life. And we see how important and how crucial and how, you know, liberating the energy of women can be mm-hmm. and, and their leadership and how their leadership can bring societies and communities um, to, you know, to a greater strength. And then I also saw that with Jacinta Arden when, you know, mm-hmm. um, what happened with um, the problem for the, you know, um, the Muslim, yeah, the, the leader, the Muslim um, problem that arose and how she just galvanized the whole society, you know, the, she brought the whole community. And even at the time, she, she had a little child, you know, she was a mother herself. But she was not even going home. She was really connecting with the community and mourning with them and showing them, you know, and walking with them in their, in their time of adversity and in their time of, of grievance. So having seen that, I think, you know, as women, when, our, when we take back our reins, because what has happened to the world is also the lack of our leadership and the lack of our, you know, uh, connecting to our power. And so now we have to come back and say, well, we can do this. And I do believe that women are inclusive in their leadership. They bring men, men along. We are more compassionate. You know, we have 99 names for God in the Islamic culture. And one of it is Ar-Rahim. Ar-Rahim actually um, is the womb. Ar-Rahim in, in Arabic is the womb. And it's about that womb. It's about that compassion. And it's also compassion. So I think we are the womb of creation. And a new world has emerged. It's already here. And I believe that world is a world that is going to be led by women. Yes. You know? and, 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 you know, I love, um, I don't know if you know the writer Arundari Roy. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. She said she has this beautiful quote, and I'm just loosely um, saying it, but she said, you know, uh, a new world is emerging, and on a clear day, I can hear her coming. I can hear her, you know, being here. Being so, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I think that world is, is going to be, it, is, it already is. I, I see it. I feel it and it's it's the transformation and and I think people always talk about change but change is constantly happening we're not after change I think what we're after is transformation yes yeah we need to transform ourselves and our world and I think we are we are that's what you know COVID-19 has really uh, brought in it has shown us the level of interdependence that yes. you know the level of of connection and interdependence that we are and and tell me about so 
when when people realised your commit, going back to that interdependence, when people realised the community garden was open and they were welcome, did you see? I mean, you must have seen some transformations in these women that these original women of them learning from you and seeing how the essence of the community and the essence of interdependence is so crucial for the new world. Oh yes, I think you know the raw garden has many aspects, and one of the aspects of it is that it brings the academics. It brings academics. It brings storytellers. It brings um, communal people. I think it brings all people in in this one gathering, because in the in the garden we do a lot of you know people come and interview me. You know, I've I have um, guest lectured in almost all Melbourne, you know, universities. <laughs> I call myself just a storyteller, but it's, you know, being invited into, you know, in, in academia and people wanting to know how did you do this? Because I remember that the first time when we, you know, we started, we invited the dean of Melbourne Munich and she came and, you know, and looked at us and thought, oh, these women, you know, she didn't think that anything could come out of it. And told us so as well, because it's, you know, with, with academia, it's like black and white, this is how it is. Yes. And so she just said, oh, I don't see any, you know, anything much happening here. Oh. And, you know, but we saw, I think we saw the picture. So going into that, I'll just share with you a story, a beautiful story that I had. I think it will just give meaning to you know what what the dean and my and 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 I were coming from. So, in a medieval town, there were these three bricklayers hard at work in one building, and then a passerby came and asked them, "What are you doing?" So he asked each one of them, "What are you doing?" And the first man said, you know, uh, gruffly. I am Bill, I am laying bricks. The second man replied, I am building a wall. The third man looked up and answered the guy, I am building a cathedral. <laughs> and so these three men were all doing the same work, but each one saw something different. And so for me, at the time, it was a vision. The raw garden was a vision. I could feel it. I could see it. But it wasn't there. And when the dean came, she saw something different as well. Mm. Eight years later, this place has not only transformed um, the community around me, but, you know, what it has done for us as a family is that it's taught us that family exists beyond blood relations, you know, and it has transformed my family back home because they see the work that I do here. And, you know, I connected them to the project and it's just incredible. You know, one of the women that I met through this permaculture uh, journey, she went back to Uganda and met my family and she was doing some projects there and just, you know, connected with them. So it's, it's just amazing what can happen from, you know, a simple vision, a simple seed that you saw. And I think that's who we are. We are just like, you know, um, we are seeds. 
and whatever seed that we plant is whatever we are going to to harvest and that's why you know in our community garden this time over we are saying we are seeding the community with love and we are weeding out fear and that's our mantra whenever we are gardening I'd love to sort of talk to you about motherhood because obviously listening to this podcast are lots of mothers um, and carers and grandparents and what your learnings I mean you've traversed many cultures or cultures you've traversed languages (laughs) you've had to you've done so much more than you know the average person in the lifetime you've achieved so much more how what and, and then you throw motherhood into this you know dealing with your own you know we all deal with our own issues you've had to deal with many 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 things yeah. and um not so nice things how do you yeah tell me about that what are your learnings from all this and how have your kids how are your kids <laughs> like how are my children yeah so I think, you know, uh, motherhood is one of the most important. I think I think I feel truly, truly um, privileged to be a mother, you know. Um, it absolutely humbles me that I'm a mother of five. And sometimes if you see my children with me, people don't know that they're my kids because they're old now, older. Young, yeah. and, <laughs> yes. But, you know... Um, Motherhood, you know, my mother always used to tell us, you know, you are a mother even when you're not a mother, you know. So even as children, she would say, you know, as long as you have the womb, you're a mother, whether you have children or not. You're a woman, you've become a mother. And so having your own children though is so different because it's like for me i've had my children in hard circumstances in in spaces where there was a lot of suffering and i think with motherhood you know there comes a lot of guilt there comes a lot of because of our want of to give our children everything we sometimes feel that we haven't done enough so one thing that as a mother i have learned to let go is guilt and fear for our children because you know when we have when we're very fearful or when we have guilt or when we look at our children in a certain way it's it's whatever energy that we're projecting upon them is the energy that they become looking at our children we have to look them as souls who have come for a journey who has who have come for an experience And it took me a long time to know that because as our children, for us, we think that they are ours, you know. They are like, we treat them as material sometimes and we feel like they're ours. But I realized that each and every child, I have five children and every one of them was different and unique in every way, in their way, in, in the way they chose to come into this life. You know, even when I was having the baby, how they chose their entrance, each one was different. And again, each one tells you the way you, you're supposed to, to treat them. Mm-hmm. And some are more autonomous than others. And so through that journey of motherhood, I think I, I learned one of the things that is really important and that I learned is the fact that 
we call these souls and they have gifts and learnings for us when we are ready to receive. So I've learned a lesson from each and every child of mine. And when we are open to the lessons, I think we grow. And the biggest growth I have had came through my children. They have challenged me in ways that, uh, you know, beyond understanding, you know. And I think for me in the beginning, is especially when you come with a culture and you want to pass it on, you know, it's like the story that I have been given by my parents and I want to pass it on to my children. But, you know, having come with them to the West, I feel that they've gone well, I think we're going to be the first generation that are going to reject this story. So they stopped and they said, no, mom, this is not what we want. This is what we want. And I think as a speaker and a storyteller and a space holder, I learned to hold space with them and for them. And I, one of the sweetest things that came out of that is that I work with my daughter now and oh. we call ourselves the story um, intergenerational story inspirers because we want to use our story to inspire mothers and daughters especially mothers and daughters they are the they carry the lineage of um, the female part you know the matri- matriarchal um, which we've lost and I think when we make sense of that lineage that comes from the grandmother to the mother to the daughter, it, it just, and we can dismantle a lot of things. And I love the saying, you know, the, um, the Native American saying of if a woman heals herself, she heals the women before her and the women after her. And I think... A lot of healing has happened with myself and my daughters. And the boys don't open up as much. But mm. with my daughters, we hold space for each other. Wow. I mean, to come from, you know, I find that, I find everything you're saying inspirational and also challenging because, you know, coming from um, English parents, I guess, um, where you sort of did as you were told mm-hmm. um, and now living in Byron Bay where it's it's a different way of parenting. It's it's so challenging. So I'm very inspired to hear, yeah, you speak about that. Yeah, in my book I have a whole chapter called Parenting in the West oh. because it's different, you know. When you parent in Africa and you parent through the communal system, it's so different than parenting in the West where, you know, I didn't have the, that communal, you know, space. But I gave a lot of work into my, I had my in-laws here. I wanted my children to have. So I have almost like every Saturday, I called the whole families. You know, Mohammed had two brothers here who also had wives. And so I would bring the cousins together and, you know, cook for them. So again, we used food, but I think that connection of, of, of community, of family, of, you know, um, relationships aren't easy, but we can, we can support each other in building relationships and we can have amazing and incredible relationships with our, our children if, when we choose to. 
it's not an easy job. It's, you know, it's sitting in the discomfort. I think we most often bypass grief. And there's a lot of grievances within us. I, I believe that the heart is where grief and grace co-reside. And the intersection of the grief and the grace is to sit in that space of, of you know, and, and, and sit in that discomfort. And in that space, we have the power to catalyze that gr- grief into grace. But the grief needs not be bypassed. We need to feel it. And unfortunately, not many of us feel that we can do that. We just always almost, you know, run away from our, you know, yeah there's a lot especially in the west there's so much destruction and you feel like in in your old sort of community or your previous community grief was dealt with tell us about that was that dealt with in a in a really different way people knew they had to sit with it yes because of the culture of storytelling and also because of the you know um the faith you know faith religions have their dogmas and you know i know that a lot of people are walking away from religion and you know rightfully so sometimes but it also teaches you to really um connect there's that spiritual world you know how i was talking about the truth so in, yeah you do understand this truth about yourself spiritually but you also know the truth of you know um the worldly so sometimes, you know, you know that this is a storm and it will pass. So you sit with that, especially with death. You know, how death is in the West was, you know, um, different for me because in our African culture, we don't believe in death. We believe in the continuation of life, that someone passed away doesn't mean that they're gone. So we knew that, like you would grieve that person. And in our Islamic tradition, it's you grieve three days and then you, you let, you know, if you're going to, you give people three days to grieve with, you grieve with them. And then after that, the family is left alone to, to do their own grievances. Yeah, right. Yeah. What about, um, I want to flick over to a really important, the momentum we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement and obviously you being a woman of colour, how that has impacted and your your thoughts on it. And I think we sort of touched on it the other day. Um, and, you know, I'm really, really deep sort of reading about white privilege and our responsibility here um, and our blindsidedness in this moment. Um, So I'm always interested to hear, obviously, your perspective. I think one of the hardest things for me was um, the death of of George Floyd. And, you know, um, his parting words, which were, I cannot breathe. Mm. And it feels that, you know, and that talks so much about the suffocation that we're suffocated by the systems that are around us, that we do not have voice, that we cannot even breathe. So his was a literal meaning, but as a a soul like that comes and demonstrates that to us. So 
I think this is the work for humanity to look at that then and see how deep and dark our atrocities have become and then talk from that space. And sometimes, you know, you listen to people and it's not, we're not even talking about the issues that need to be talked about, Yeah, you know? So again, it's not, we're not sitting in the discomfort. So as a woman of color, I feel that this is the space where we are called into the arena. We cannot be spectators anymore. We need to be part of the decision-making tables. And we need, that, we need to step up in our leadership. We need to step up in our economy space. We need to step up in politics, in all you know, walks of life to make the world a better place. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why we're having these conversations. I really do know that, you know, um, these conversations are the starting point of, you know, making things happen. Sometimes jump into action. But I think, you know, before the action, we need to come together and feel, first of all, you know, this grief. And And listen, listen listen to each other. Yeah. And allow each other, you know, the, yeah, the, the space to, you know, hold space for me to grieve, yeah. you know, and we haven't done that yet. No. Yeah, we, we're not doing much of that. We are pointing finger. we are in the anger phase. I think we're in the drama triangle, you know, where it's either we're victims or we're prosecutors and angry or we're saviors and we want to save others. I think it's time that we transcend this triangle into the triangle of empowerment, which is we have to be creators to know that we did this and we can create differently. We've got to be able to challenge each other and to coach one another to, be, to, go, to come out of that. And I think when we want to coach people, you've got to allow their dignity. You've got to dignify them. You know? mm. And sometimes, you know, people might be in a lesser privilege or lesser, you know, but it doesn't mean that they can't do it. See their potential before they do and give them that power. Even if it's not by action, give it to them by, by heart. You know, the heart is the fastest space of enabling someone. You know, that's the observation with no judgment. Don't judge someone. Allow them, dignify them. Oh, Marion, this has been such a beautiful conversation. I um, yeah, I could I could talk to you forever. Oh, thank you, and I love <laughs> your magazine. So I'm gonna be featured in your magazine. That You're gonna be in the magazine. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our first Lunch Lady podcast. I really hope this chat with Mariam left you feeling hopeful and inspired. If you liked this conversation, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really liked it, be a legend and leave us a good review. Lunch Lady is a magazine where parenting is not taken too seriously, but a balanced approach to family life is. It's a beautifully printed kitchen keepsake full of recipes, inspiring family stories, DIY craft, and funny, relatable opinion pieces about the ups and downs of raising children. For more info on Lunch Lady magazine, head to shop 
www.hellolunchlady.com.au.